This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. We are on a horror movie podcast. And it's not your fucking grandma's horror movie podcast where we talk about horror movies and both people have seen them. Um, it's your grand, grand, your great aunt's podcast where it's <laughs> something like that, Shaq, where one of the, <laughs> one of the sectors, one of the sections of people has not seen any. I'm that person. And as the evening has progressed, I say that I've learned a little bit more about horror films and Shag laid down a gentle gauntlet uh, an hour or two ago or a few minutes ago that said, look, we probably know enough about horror films now to start thinking carefully about writing our own. And the view I take is that's 100% right. We've basically figured it all out and it's probably fucking easy to write a horror movie. And so I think my moment of truth is looming. And Shag, I suspect you are one of the world's greatest brainstormers. So I feel like I've got a couple of amazing ideas to throw at you. And we'll just work through it. And basically, you can turn my rough ideas into the perfect movie. How do you feel? Well, according to the Harvard Business School, one of the best ways to run a brainstorm is to start with a generation session where everybody just throws in ideas. No, no idea is a bad idea. Just throw in ideas. Don't shoot anybody down. The next session is to build on the existing ideas. Then after that, you cull them down. And then after that, you end up with a finished product. Now, we don't have time to make a film, but we have time to generate some ideas and build on those ideas. So no, no, Peach, no, no, that no. sounds like a great way to run a brainstorm. Shag, we've just... I have internally in my head conducted the first brainstorm, right? <laughs> so I've, uh, I've narrowed down all the bad ideas. They're gone. Don't worry. You're walking the <laughs> second brainstorm now where it's just refining my amazing ideas. Okay? All right. Well, first of all, first of all, hmm. every great horror film needs a, like a chewy bitey title that I can really sink oh, my teeth oh, oh, I actually have a genuine answer. Right. Um, do you want to hear the concept before the... It, so, so it's actually a bit of a brainstorm for the title, but it's thematic, right? It's something like don't look or eyes up or eyes shut or look down or look around or eyes closed or look out or some sort of eyes look, eyes away focused title all right so that's that's my brainstorm theory do you, do you want to hear what's going on in this in this film right hugely okay so it is not a 
profound. So it's not a slasher movie. I'm sorry to say we don't have a big, ugly, bad guy coming. It is more a COVID-flavoured, contagio-inflected, post-apocalypto-flavoured horror film. Right, right. so it's Cabin Fever 2, Frontiers. Look, I I deeply, I'm so so regretful that this is coming hot off the heels of Eli Roth's masterpiece, Cabin Fever. (laughs) But in essence, the bad thing that I think we'll say is not necessarily a virus, we'll say it's some demonic hell thing, or we'll say it's some alien horrifying thing. So I'm scared already. I'm spooked. (laughs) Look out. It is um, passed on through eye contact, right? And so there is a um, an element where our world shuts down. And so we all look to the ground in order to conduct our in order to conduct our hand-to-hand transactions to buy flour and to you know receive legal services about complex commercial litigation and all these sort of necessary transactions we all need to make. (laughs) (laughs) And through all these necessary transactions, we're avoiding eye contact, right? Because the way the virus or the fucking thing is transmitted is by us making eye contact. Now, Peach, what what you've done, so you've created a world... Now, what you know from having, you know, gone through the synopsis of 37 horror films already mm-hmm. is that you can't just tell a macro story. You need a personal story that brings that world to life. So, so, so bring me into this world. What's, what's the story <laughs> in whatever it is, eyes up the staunchening or whatever it's called? Does it, does it assist you to know... <laughs> that's about all I've got. <laughs> and I'm now rely on you to sort of bring it home with me having done most of the hard work. I bloody love this. Uh, I, I will come back to you. Uh, once again, I do have to apologise for the strange level of ghostiness in our audio quality at the moment. Obviously, it will be fixed eventually when we all come out the other side. <laughs> but... Uh, Peach, I'm going to come back to you next episode with what I think is going to happen oh, in the staunchening. But I do <laughs> like that, you know, one of the things that we were so afraid of doing as teenagers because we were so within ourselves and we were surrounded by bullies in high school <laughs> is we didn't make eye contact with anyone. I think it's amazing girls, that this is... Um, yeah, true. But I, I think it's amazing that this has become, you know, the, the premise of the film. And I'm excited to continue the story of Eyes Up in the next episode. So Eyes Up, one of the tensions is the way you show trust to a new Eyes Up tribe, it feels a bit more post-apocalyptic than horror. I must confess that problem as I work through it. But the way you show trust to a new person you meet in the world of Eyes Up is you go, no, don't worry, I'm not infected. You can make eye contact with me. And the other person's like, mm-hmm, yeah, all right, okay, can I make eye contact with you? And you go, yeah, eyes up. I go, mm, one, two, three, eyes up. And then, you know, if I've met someone new who I can trust, kablang, sick, now I can trust you and we're going to go on our adventure together. But that's also how the demon, virus, computer, whatever, is transmitted. So it's... It's Holy fuck, I've just worked it out. Peach, I've just worked it out. But 
obviously we will, we will build this out. Like I, I want to like let this marinate and simmer over the next couple of episodes, but here's what I'm thinking. Mm. The protagonist is blind, oh. but, but, but in a twist, we notice them look at something and we're like, hang on. It's the book but of I Eli, thought they were the book of whatever it's called, the book of God. Oh, no, the book of Eli sucks because at the end, the book of Eli is the Bible. It sucks. I don't, I think I was fairly faded to work. <laughs> but I remember it being thrilling because he cut heaps of people up and Gary. No, on. it sucks because at the end, it's like, imagine if we all valued the Bible as highly as a post-apocalyptic society did. <laughs> like, it sucks so much. It sucks more than up. <gasps> Shag up as that moving early, <laughs> early. <laughs> <laughs> all right, okay, all right, all right. Let's move on. Let's move on. Um, today, uh, eyes up, eyes up, eyes up. But no, 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 no. So we're going to get to eyes up. But you know, we do have to get you over your fear of horror movies. Yes. So today, I, I wanted to go back to cheesy eighties horror for a little while. So today, oh, I'm going yes. back to one of our earliest faves, Clive Barker's Hellraiser. And I want to go to the sequel, Hellraiser 2, because I'm a big... F- oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, can I, can I interrupt? Look, sneeze it up. But I thought maybe this podcast, we weren't allowed to do sequels. I thought we'd have to choose one from the franchise. Are we really doing a sequel to Hellraiser, one of my faves? We are, and mainly because it features one of my favourite tropes in horror movies, how you bring to life hell in a scary way because oh. hell's just like like the traditional view of hell just isn't scary no. you know just like caverns and fire and tridents and stuff no like we also beyond like yes maybe a couple of hundred years ago that would spook the hell out of you but now that's that's what we saw every day during the iraq war on the news <laughs> so so like, but, you know, people have to creatively find new ways to bring hell to life in scary ways, but also in ways that are able to be brought to life by a horror film budget, which usually aren't that big, especially in a sequel. So I'm excited to talk about how Hellraiser 2 brings the world of hell to life. Rich. The vision is renewed. The power is reawakened. Fear is reborn because they have returned. Time to play. Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Brace yourself for terror you have never imagined. That looks like the sickest ever. To make hell feel like Labyrinth. You, you know, I suspect David Bowie's going to come down and be like, Peach, don't worry about it. It's hell, buddy. Here comes a huge <laughs> banger. 1987 Bowie style. That looks super fun. Shag, is it a great film? Peach, it's amazing. And amazing in... A 1988 standards. So put, you know, put that lens over it. And yes, I enjoy it. Look, I mean, I know we've made fun of British horror in the past, but the first two Hellraisers are super fun. Like they're gross as hell, but they are super fun. Now, if you remember correctly, 
Hellraiser is set in a universe where there's this parallel dimensional travelers called the Cenobites mm. who are basically like, like pleasure, inter, interdimensional pleasure seekers. But, but in their world, you get the most pleasure by pushing your pain to the limit. So they basically leave these puzzles around Earth called the Lament Configuration, which I don't know if it had a name in the first one, but in the second no, one... they're just called puzzle, puzzle Boxes, I think. In- yeah, so it's actually called the Lament Configuration. And they basically leave it around. And if you solve it, the Cenobites come and basically like tear your flesh and stuff apart until you've had heaps of pleasure. Like, it's not, it's specific enough to be scary, but vague enough so you don't have all the answers. Oh, uh, look, we've, uh, we've spoken about consent, though, before. Yes. And let's yes. Go- and remember, they do, you do kind of need to agree to do it, and you're sort of consenting by doing the lament configuration. Yes. Let's just, just to set out the framework of what we believe on this podcast... So yes. we consider that consent is the most important element in any sexual or any other interaction in the world. Any relationship that, yeah, that involves mutual pleasure. Yeah, or interaction of any kind. So pleasure yes. needs to be it. consent, knowing, mm-hmm. active, enthusiast. And yeah. so the Cenobite dimension take a different view of consent they take the view that if you complete a lament box, we'll rip your fucking skin off and that's fine. Is that fair? Yeah, that is, that's, that's basically the plot of the Hellraiser films. Fucking hell. Remember the hero bad guy Pinhead? He's like yes. the main one. He's, okay. So at the start of this film, you see that Pinhead's origin is a British military officer in like the super colonial days, so I guess like the 19th century. Is transformed into the center by Pinhead after opening the Lament configuration. See? So he's in he's in one of those like you know those movie versions. We've talked about this before. Whenever like the Middle East is depicted in a film pre like 2010 as this wild west, basically yep. like you know with people in robes and fortune tellers and dust storms everywhere. It's basically like that. We then go forward to the present where we follow basically what happened at the end of the last film. If you remember correctly, uh, Kirsty Cotton's father opens the lament configuration, tries to get heaps more skin through his girlfriend to become whole again. Like, it's gross. All this stuff happens. Anyway, yeah. so Kirsty But is a demon the... flies away at the end with the lament configuration. Just Actually, yeah. To Morocco. That's true. That's true. So meanwhile, Kirsty Cotton is admitted into a psychiatric hospital, interviewed by Dr. Channard and his assistant, Kyle McRae. <laughs> she tells her account of the events and pleads with them to destroy the bloody mattress her murderous stepmother, Julia Cotton, died upon. Shag, you should just know, and this is a side note that will not make sense on the audio track, but will make sense on the visual track, that I'm talking to a muslin and it's sort of like dealing with Scarecrow in, in Batman, I imagine, of being like, so you fucking spook? I'm trying to record under this muslin cloth to, like, get rid of some of the echo. So, so meanwhile, Dr. Channard, who you know from all of your knowledge of horror films, never go to a horror film psychiatric hospital in Rabbit Ears. Shag, can we have a psychiatric hospital in Eyes Up? Somehow. Oh, that's oh, a great... Maybe it starts in, in a psychiatric oh, hospital. Oh, sick for blindness. 
full psychiatrically <laughs> induced blindness. I was like, oh, that, fucking don't worry, guys. It's all psych blindness. And also, how do they do their psych sessions without being able to look in, without being able to look into each other's oh, eyes? You've got to keep your us. Who's going to do the soundtrack? We're going to have someone big rap about eyes. Oh, I reckon by the time we get this film through funding and shot and ready to go into theaters, Ludacris's fees will be low enough that we can get like. Because he's like, no matter how. We could get Ludacris for 20 grand, I reckon. I re- yeah, 20, and. Eyes up. No, no matter how much his star dims, he always brings it. Like, he always yes. tries. I mean, imagine if we sent him an email today. <laughs> like, have you got three or four hours to mind? He's really, really hit up Eyes Up. Here's eight bars we think you could smash. Edit them however you want. He would come back with something. Kind of telling the story, so he weaves in some of the plot lines into the rap. They're the best rap. They're the cool. <laughs> like it would have to involve us in a very big way. <laughs> you don't want to feel spooko. <laughs> oh, getting some spooko ad libs and that would be sick. French Montana wouldn't charge more than a hundred grand. So. For $125,000, which, Shake, you would make in a fortnight, (laughs) (laughs) we'd have (laughs) Luna and French Montana guesting on the track. There would be a spooko inflected eyes. (laughs) That would be huge. All right. So, after hearing Kirsty's story, Dr. Channard who is secretly obsessed with the lament configuration, has the mattress brought to his home and convinces a mentally ill patient to lie on it and cut himself with a straight razor. Reshes would surely pay for eyes up as well as (laughs) purchasing us at least one lament configuration for us just to mess around with and see how it works. (laughs) Reshes, like, come on. Like, you'll figure it out. But Peach, did you miss the fact that Dr. Channard brought home a mentally ill, again, rabbit ears patient to lie on it and cut himself with a straight razor? Sorry, I did miss and cut himself <laughs> with a straight razor. <laughs> Fucking hell. Now, the resulting blood flow freezes skinless Julia from the center by <laughs> No one has any skin when they come back. <laughs> <laughs> they go, oh, good to see everyone. <laughs> I'd love to get a fucking pie and chips. <laughs> skin. So McRae, who is Dr. Channard's assistant, having snuck inside Dr. Channard's house to investigate Kirsty's claim, witnesses the event and flees. Kirsty meets a young patient, because she's still in the hospital, named Tiffany, who demonstrates an amazing aptitude for puzzles. Later that night, Kirsty is awakened in her room by a vision of her skinless father. <laughs> Eyes up. Now he tells her in writing <laughs> that, he's in hell, that he's in hell and to help him. Um, oh, oh, like, again, if I, if I just pause right now, I think legally often things are better in writing, right? Yes. Uh, some verbal promises are enforceable. <laughs> But Shag, can I like now you're taking an aside? Can I take an aside within an aside? 
Okay, yeah. Did the preview look like it was in like an exciting maze in hell? Like, we even Peach, hang on, hang on. He's just look, look. Kirsty's dad is in hell. He came to her skinless and was like, "Get me out of here." But he's, I mean, what is hell? You've got to be dead to go there, don't like, don't. You? Well, no, because if you if you elect it, like. Uh, it's like, does heaven exist in this world where there's hell? Yeah, well, let, let, let's talk horror movie logic because the religious version of like heaven and hell, you, heaven, you go there because you've done really well, hell, you go there because you're like being punished, isn't as scary as the idea that hell's this sort of other dimension. So th this is another trope. It's not just about bringing these things to life. It's being like, no, hell does exist, but... Did you know that it's actually a parallel dimension? That's what happens in Advent Horizon. That happens in a lot of these films where they bring hell to life, which... But they... then where, like, where are the films at the heaven dimension? Where it's like, oh, Shaq, remember <laughs> how you guys played heaps of fucking Tony Hawk 4 and just <laughs> ate kebabs and drank long necks? Like, I would just sit there... Fucking forever. Like, I remember, like, there was a night, Shag, when you and I were living in the same house where we played Tony Hawk 4 for about three hours. I drank several long necks and ate kebabs. Alice, my current wife and forever wife, hopefully, <laughs> came home, ate one kebab, drank one long neck. I high-fived you, went upstairs, had sex with Alice and slept for like 11 hours before getting up on a Saturday morning and walking to the bakery down the street to buy some fucking sourdough rolls that I ate with butter the next day. And I was like, well, like, like what else? Or like, what else is there than that? Like, why isn't there a film about me and you playing Tony Hawk 4, then Al getting home late and having a beer and a kebab, then going to sleep and going to a bakery? So, Peach, one of the things you're learning from our you know, creative jam sessions where we brainstorm about this film is to always keep those ideas with you because you never know how they're going to connect. I think in Eyes Up, we should go to the heaven dimension at some point. All right, so, so meanwhile, after Kirstie is awakened in her room by her skinless father being like, get me out of hell in writing, McRae, Dr. Channel's assistant, comes back to the hospital and tells Kirstie that he believes everything she said is true, the two decide to return to Dr. Channard's house. I just broke my chair. Oh, shit. Properly. <laughs> this is really spooky. Let's keep going, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, Pitch, you okay? Uh, sorry, it's a collapsing chair, a little more, but let's... Yeah, it's a collapsing chair, a little more in an empty house with a few ghosts around, but let's keep going. Well, we are getting close to episode 52, and crazy things are starting to happen. Uh, that, now's not the time, Jack. I'm the one that gets fucking spooked. I'm drunk in a fucking house in an empty space. Uh, let's just keep my anxiety levels low. Please. Okay, all right. So meanwhile, Dr. Channard, who has been seduced by the skinless Julia, has brought, <laughs> has brought more mentally ill patients to his home for her to feed on and regenerate. So it's kind of the same plot as number one. Let's bring some people in to use their skin. Now, I am in a relationship and 
expect to be for the next 45 or 50 years. And so I don't consider myself available for seduction. But if I was, I don't think skinless corpses <laughs> would be my like, <laughs> like <laughs> Okay, so Kirsty and McGray arrive at Channard's home. McGray is killed by a now fully generated Julia, and Kirsty is knocked unconscious. Good work, Julia. Props to you. Well, I mean, she's got all her skin back. Yeah, she bloody loves it and good on her. Channard and Julia kidnap Tiffany and force her to unlock the lament. So remember, Tiffany is the girl at, who, who's come with Kirsty because she's really good at solving puzzles. Yeah, so I'm grateful to you for that reminder. I had forgotten that. Let's go. So Kirsty gets sent to a hospital where it just turns out that the doctor looking after her love, bloody loves the lament conviction. <laughs> and then Kirsty, of course, the person she finds in the hospital to be her best friend just happens to be great at box-like puzzles. Oh, do you know the lament configuration? That's my whole... <laughs> I mean, the franchise that relates to the lament configuration. That's sick. So, Channel and Julia kidnap Tiffany, force her to unlock the lament configuration so they can enter the labyrinth-like world of Pinhead and the Cenobites. Now, they never explicitly go, this is hell, but they basically hint at it to be like, hell is a giant labyrinth. Sick. It's pretty good hell. Like, being lost forever, that feels helly. So they enter followed by Kirsty, who now possesses the lament configuration. Pinhead and the other Cenobites find Kirsty and tell her she is free to explore. Julia betrays Dr. Channard and leaves him to be transformed into a Cenobite by the god of hell, Leviathan. All right, let's talk about Leviathan because beyond horror movie depictions of hell, one of my favourite tropes in horror films is how they depict Satan or, you know, the, the 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 ultimate evil, whatever it is, right? You know, and it's a hard thing to do. And what I think this film does quite cleverly is they depict they depict Leviathan, the god of hell, as this giant black, perfectly geometrical, like this geometrically perfect diamond that just hangs in the middle of the sky. Doesn't really uh. kind of like the eye of Sauron. Just kind of doesn't really say anything. It's just there. Its name is Leviathan. Just super, and you know, it's a, it's a bright blue sky, but the sun, the thing that's emitting all the light is jet black. So Shag and I are Zoom distanced from each other. And I'm now uh, alcohol distanced from reality, but I'm trying to kiss <laughs> my fingers to let Shag know that I think that's a great insight. I'm, I'm kissing him. Leviathan, you dark up that sky with your black light. Let's do it. Let's get through this maze. Now, Kirsty, who's just going for a wander, encounters Frank Cotton in the labyrinth. From who film reveals one. That, from film one. Dude, like, <laughs> I'm telling you, like, there's lots of shit going on. And reveals that he tricked her by pretending to be her father. So that wasn't her father zooming her from the grave. It's still <laughs> fucked. <laughs> like, it's still mega <laughs> fucked. Like, mega fucked. Now, at this point, Julia appears and destroys Frank in revenge for killing her, yes. allowing Kirsty to escape. Get this, all right? This kind of explains all the skinlessness, right? So Julia is then killed by a vortex that opens within the labyrinth, leaving only her skin behind. Uh, 
Okay. So they've all lost their skin because they get killed by vortexes in the labyrinth that sucks up their insides but leaves their skin behind. But I thought people, I thought they loved skin. I thought this was the whole vibe. <laughs> it doesn't make it look. It's, okay. yeah. All right, anyway, I think that the whole point is it's, it's kind of like a careful what you wish for because it's like, cool, you want the ultimate pleasure, here you go, but you actually want because yeah. this so is guy, You want to keep your skin? Awesome. Well, uh, <laughs> that's fine. We'll take all the other stuff. <laughs> careful what you wish for. <laughs> okay. Are you sure you want your skin? <laughs> <laughs> that's also the thing that I always hated about Othello when he's uh, like, okay, well, sorry. I, I'll take your pound of flesh, but I, I can't, you can't take the blood or anything else. And it's like, it's obviously implied when I said I'd take a pound of flesh. That's the Merchant of Venice. Like, I'm with you, Shaq. I'm in the Shaq camp <laughs> on that. But I also thought of like, all right, cut it out. Okay, cool. I can't have blood. You keep the blood. Just fucking cut it off. <laughs> Tell me when the blood's gone and you fucking, like, that's fine. So, yeah, you're right. I can't have blood. Yep, that's fine. So cut it off and you let me know when the blood's out and then I'll take All right. So meanwhile, remember Kirsty and Tiffany, who were allowed to explore, reconnect in the labyrinth and attempt to escape, but are ambushed by Chanard now having become a Cenobite. So Leviathan has turned Chanard into a Cenobite. I don't know what kind of Cenobite he is, but I don't think it's that interesting. Uh, uh, like the Cenobite powers are fucking I've acupuncture in my face. Like. So Peach, 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 Peach. The thing you don't know is in, in future films, when they go to the nineties, Cenobites start getting like really nineties powers. Like oh, there's one who has half CD in his face. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another one who has a personal camcorder in his eye, and his power is that he can like see heaps of stuff. Uh. That does sound fun, actually. Like, boring powers. That's us. <laughs> so, Kirsty and Tiffany flee and encounter Pinhead and the other Cenobites. Kirsty shows Pinhead a photograph of Elliot Spencer, who Pinhead used to be, that she took from Chanard's study, and he suddenly remembers that he was human. Suddenly, Chanard appears. Pinhead and the other Cenobites attempt to fight him, but Chanard easily overpowers and kills them all. So now Pinhead and the other Cenobites are dead, which is weird because you're in hell, which I didn't think you could die. But anyway, so they're all dead. Mm, yeah, and Pinhead sort of is Chanard, but yes, that's cool. Chanard traps Kirsty and Tiffany. Kirsty finds Julia's skin and wears it to distract Chanard. <laughs> I love the amount of skin wearing that goes on in this franchise. I also think we've talked about this before, but I don't care how well you do it you yeah. are never going to pass as anything but someone Ooh, it's just me julia yeah man <laughs> don't worry oh you can see from my skin that it's me oh yeah <laughs> it's just Oh, 
and all the clothes that I'll surely find shortly. <laughs> but skin for the moment. Yes, definitely. Don't ask questions about my personality. No. So, 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 so. Kirsty finds Julie's skin and wears it to distract Chenard, giving <laughs> Tiffany enough time to once again solve the lament configuration. Now, I did a little bit of extra research, and it turns out that when you solve the lament configuration in hell, it temporarily weakens Leviathan and makes all the Cenobites disappear. Because uh, we don't know what Leviathan or the Cenobites are, the fact they're weakened or not doesn't matter, but I'm still having fun. Okay. So Chanard is killed and the door to hell is finally Peace. closed. Peace. Kirsty and Tiffany leave. Peace. Elsewhere, two moving men are removing Dr. Chanard's belongings from his home. One is pulled inside of the mattress and the other witnesses a mysterious pillar rise from within it. The end. Question mark. Tough times. Fuck, Shag, such a good choice of film. Uh, this was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up?